Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, your adoption show. I'm April Fallon. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to Adoption Now, your adoption show. I'm your host, April Fallon. I am so happy to be bringing you not only a podcast, but also video. Yay! You can always listen the way you have before, but if you want to see the interview, you can go to Adoption Now on YouTube. Adoption Now, Telling Your Adoption Story is a nonprofit. We help families through the adoption process by telling real stories by real people. Adoption Now is giving adoption a voice, and what we do is really opening understanding to the whole story, knowing every single part, every single voice. We share the joys and challenges of adoption, the love and the loss, and I am passionate about adoption because I am the adoptive mother of four beautiful children. Oh my goodness. Okay. I am just, I'm too excited. We are wrapping up season six, and this interview is everything to me. It's bringing together both of my worlds and everything I love. When I pre-interviewed our guest, he said he was from Africa. So I was excited about that. And then he said he was from Uganda. Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh. If you have listened to the show, you know I lived three years in Uganda. Like that is my country. This is my brother. I just got so excited. There was an instant connection. He's amazing. He was born in Uganda. He worked for World Vision. He became a foster dad. He's adopted two children. He's been on the Today Show and on the BBC. And now he has just written a new book called Now I Am Known. Peter, so happy to have you on the show. Me too, April. I, I feel like I've known you for so long, but just because you lived in my country, like you know, I know, you know the child. Oh my like, goodness. You know. Oliotia Sebo. Gendi Odiotia. Oliotia. Oh yes, Gendi. For those listening, it's, you just said, How are you? And I said, I am good. And then we always go back and forth. Yes, Odiotia. Gendi. Gendi. You say it over and over. So good. So yes. good. Always. And when I said that to you on the phone and you responded back, it was like tears of just joy. Just I love your country. And I love what you're doing. And so we connected on this huge background of history, but also our heart for children. Mm -hmm. Yes. You've written a book. I love children. I know you love children. You want all the children, you told me. I said, I want all the children. (laughs) I want a 20 now, if you can give me a house (laughs) and a a bus that can take them anywhere. A bus. Yes. A bus. My husband and I always talk about, can we get a bigger vehicle it's like a bus and the kids are like yes a bus can you imagine that parallel parking mm-hmm. <laughs> okay i want to hear your story and so do our listeners so let's start at the very beginning how does a person from uganda get to where you are well that's a long story i would need about a month to finish the whole <laughs> journey but i would do my best to make it into a you know a short story but i come from the world of the poor of the poorest and and apple you know it quite well like it's really sometimes hard to explain mm-hmm. to an american like what does poverty look like but think about like if you're poor that you could not afford one meal a day think about it. if you're poor that you could not afford 
even just that there's no clean water. Think about you're so poor that everyone around you is poor and no one ever told you, hey, there's a future for you. You know, there's a hope for you, like zero. There's no one ever told me like I could ever make it in life. And that was me. At the age of, of two, I got my first name because I did not have a name. Because for most kids who were born in my village, they would die before the age of two during my time. So moms would wait until they, you know, they're like, okay, I'll let's see, I'll wait. And if he makes it, then I'll give him a name. So my name is Javier Man, which means a gift given by God. That's my name. But then at the age of four, I did most things that, I, you know, a 12-year-old can do. Mm -hmm. I went to fetch water three to four miles away. I helped mom in the garden. You know, I knew how to cook and how to babysit my siblings. So by four, I had already lost my childhood. Like I, I never had an opportunity to be a kid. And then at four, also, I realized that I had the most abusive dad you could think of. So on one side, we have poverty that is miserable about you and everyone around you. But then inside your own home, the safety little home you have, you have your own dad that was your worst enemy. Mm -hmm. So for me, had you told me to dream, it was more like today is bad enough that I would not want to dream to see tomorrow. Yeah. You know? I need today to survive today. And even if I survive today? Do I even want to survive today? Right? Whole exactly. different mentality. Yes. You know, you know, do I have to go to bed? You know, you haven't had a meal the next day, the last day, you know, no, I don't want to see tomorrow. Well, life continues at age of 10. You know, I, I think as you grow older, you understand abuse in a different way. So I thought, look, to give my dad an opportunity to kill me, I'd rather give it to a stranger to take my life. So I was like, there's no way I will let my dad take my life. And, and I think in my head, I was thinking, there's no way I would let him enjoy taking my life. So I went to the bus station and I asked the lady, hey, of these buses, which goes the farthest? Because I had never been 20 miles away. So I was just saying, how far can I go that my dad will never see me? But if he does, I'll be in trouble. So how far can I go that he never gets to see me? Well, I got on that bus and I ended up in Kampala. You know, Kampala was 500 kilometers away. And trust me, it took about 18 or 16. I don't know how long it took, but it felt like for the first time, I did not have to worry about my own father, the abuse that I had to endure. I was worried for my mom because she got the same abuse from my dad. So in some way for me, I felt like I not, not I am free, but I don't have to endure that. Mm -hmm. Well, when I got in Kampala, I had one option. You've been in Kampala, mm -hmm. you know, you know how crazy that it place is. So, so overpacked. Right I mean, you can't even yes. imagine. Just think of cars everywhere. People on little mopeds, children. I, I, there's so much happening. You're scooting along right in traffic because it's back to back. I mean, it's just it's just a lot and a lot of pollution. High, high pollution. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you can't even imagine the pollution is so bad. The air quality is like so hard to breathe, not only with all these people, but then all of these vehicles and everything. It's just, it's something you can't even imagine. Absolutely. And and so for me, there were a lot of, uh, you know, um, uh, farmers bringing produce. So you have people buying, you have people going and a commotion is just everywhere. And so that became my home, my home right away. I became a street kid and, you know, it was the only thing I had. And, um, you know, of course. It was difficult. Of course, it was miserable. We ate in the garbage. We slept under the bridge or the sewer canal, or we did clean how you know uh, cars so we can find things to to eat. But also, it was easier to steal while you're helping. 
no? And that's how I survived. You know, so we had a strategy that I steal potatoes, you, you, you steal bananas, and at the end of the day, you know, we kind of gather and eat, you know. On the streets, I was more treated like a stray animal. Again, you, April, you've been there, and you've seen how, you know, uh, stray animals are roaming around and that became my life. That became my journey. You know, that I was just miserable. But somehow um, I was being abused by strangers who had never met me. So in some way. It's less painful. Uh, became- they didn't love you or you didn't want love from them. I, I want to say this one story because people don't really understand hunger. Um you don't understand what it's like to not have any food, right? You just don't have a refrigerator that can keep food. I mean, things are just so different. And we did an Easter egg hunt in Uganda with real Easter eggs. We boiled the Easter eggs, 400, and colored them and hid them. And when the children found the Easter eggs, they immediately ate them, like shoved them in their mouths. They were running around because they were hungry the Easter egg was life to them. It wasn't a can. It wasn't candy inside. It wasn't like our kids are like, I got Smarties. It was like real substance food, and I had never seen that before. You know, all these children were hungry, and so yes, it was fun to do an Easter egg hunt, but also it they needed the egg, right? And that's different. That's so different. And they would come up and they were so happy and, and their teeth would be colored in an Easter egg dye. <laughs> and they're like so happy with this Easter egg dye. And you're like, oh my gosh, they just ate the egg. They didn't ask me for chocolate. They didn't say, where's my toy? They just really wanted food. And that shifted everything. And talking about being in Kampala as a 10-year-old, I have, I mean, this interview is so deep in my heart because I have a 12-year-old and if I threw him on the street of Kampala, there's no way he'd make it. I mean, like, AJ, I love him so much, but can he even tie his shoes? Like, I, 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 and he'll hear this and be like, mom, I can't believe you said that. But, you know, we take care of him. He's not, he's a 12-year-old, but a 12-year-old living on the street or a 10-year-old living on the street is something totally different. They're like adults. And when people see these vulnerable children, they take advantage of them. And there's a lot of abuse. I'm not talking about, I mean, you're making, you're, you're saying it in a way um, that I think a lot of people can understand, but not, I think they can stomach it, right? But you and I both know what kind of abuse is going on. These children are being sold. They are being beaten they um, are taken to homes and they don't know when they'll come back, right? I mean, there's a lot of really terrible stuff. I'm sure you saw things. I'm sure you were with people and all of a sudden the kids were not even there, right? You didn't even know what happened to them. Yes, you know, you know, even sometimes, you know, some kids would die and we would have to bury them ourselves because there was no, no, think about like you're 12, that you're in, you're responsible for a dead body of your fellow other 12 year olds, you know, on, on how people use, you know, sometimes people were, were even terrible that instead of giving you food, they would rather throw it down on the ground so you can pick it up. So they didn't have to touch you, you know, but this place you're picking up the food is the most. Think about the sewer, a place that has no toilet, a place that has no. So to 
to really explain that to an American, it's, 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 it's impossible, you know? And that was my lap. Like literally I was seen as a stray animal, the way you can treat a stray animal, which you don't have in the United States, you know, but that's how we're treated as street kids that are eating the garbage. Most of the time you ate trash and in that trash, there was, you know, poison. I mean, life, Life could go just in in a blink of an eye, and that was my my my, my life. Or sometimes too, people will be kind to us. A kindness meant you're gonna get abused shortly. You know, that's how we were used every day. And so for me, life, I really wanted it to end sooner. You know, I, I, there was no hope. There was no glimpse in my life that I can say I have a I have a right to live, or I should be hopeful for tomorrow. Nothing, nothing. You know, you're, you're abusing everywhere, shape, form, verbally, sexually, physically. I mean, name in everywhere, shape. That you're just a little street kid that no has hope. no name. That has I think no that matter, that is know? so hard to understand that there's no hope. There's no program. There's no SSI. There, you know, do, do you know what I mean? There's no structure to help children. And there's just so many children right? There's just so much need. I mean, the fact that I am talking to you right now is a miracle that you escape the streets of Kampala. Is it, it's a miracle and it just shows that God had a plan for you. How did you get out of this? Well, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. So 99.9 of the kids I was on the streets, they all died. They have all died of two things, poison, and HIV. So there's no way I would have made it, you know, had I really stayed, but I made it through one. So our street kids would always steal by helping people because they didn't give us food. So we offered labor. So one day I saw a man and I said, Hey, I would like to help you. So I followed him before I could take anything. He said, what's your name? And that really shocked me because he wanted to know my name. You know, we were considered unwanted, unnamed. That, that's who we were. So for, for him to say, what's your name? That really made me stop. Like, wait a minute, you want to know my name? Why? You know, but before I could take food from him, he gave me something to eat and left. The next week he comes back. I see him. He gives me something to eat and called me by my name. So the next, so I saw the pattern, what time he came, what he bought. So I would always be sure that that day he will come and he was faithful to always give me something to eat. And he fed me for one year and a half. And one day he said, hey, Peter, if you had an opportunity to go to school, would you love to go to school? And I was like, uh, no, I'm a, like, and I, and I said, no, not because I could not, but I was like, don't you see? I'm a street kid. I have no hopes in life. No one is educated in my family. Why would I go to school? All I think about is the next hour. School is for human beings who, um, who matter, who have families, who want to be somebody. Me? I am less of that. And so he left. You know, a month later, he again tried. This time he said, Peter, I brought you clothes. Would you like to go to school? But can you go clean? You know, can you, he said, can you go take a shower? I was like, shower. This guy is baloney. Like how? I'm a street kid. We don't shower. We wait for the rain to rain. And maybe we might get wet, but that's it. Why would I shower? You know, I, I, I live in the garbage where I sleep is trash, where I sleep is sewer. Why would I shower? So I said, no, the third time he said, hey, go clean up. Clean up, I understood. You can put water in your face and move on. And, and also he said, if you come to school, the school you're going to, there'll be lunch, dinner, and, and, and breakfast. So I was like, wait, there's a place you can have food? 
And that is the only, that's the only reason why I went. It wasn't because I wanted to be a student. No, because he mentioned school. And because I had trusted him for one year and a half, I thought for one day, I'm going to check this place out, you know? So I went with him and on the way I asked him like, there were more than 2000 kids on the streets. Why me? Like, why would he choose me? And he said, Peter, I just want to be faithful. That's it. I did not understand what he said or what he meant, but I was like, okay. So we go to school and there was food. And finally, I ate food and they said there'll be dinner. I wait for dinner. So that became my pattern of waiting for the meal, you know, because I could not believe there was another meal. So I'd wait instead of running back to the streets, I'll wait for the next meal. And along the way, I understood that if I can go to class, that means I can keep the food coming. And so that's why I went to class. And then I found out I was smarter than I thought because teachers believed in me. They used words of affirmation. And I began to believe in myself, like, wait, you think I'm special so I can get a D, you know, and I would get a D. They were like, Peter, you matter. You belong here. And then I was like, okay, if you say so, I'll get a C, you know, in in the process of really convincing (laughs) myself from the kind words I had, I was like, you know, I can do this, but it was all about food, not the future. Right. Okay. So food was motivating you, which I totally get. I have a couple questions though. Did you have siblings that you left behind? Yes. I'm the oldest of five. So I knew it was only I I could run away. You know, I left them and that was sad, but I knew I could not protect them either. So uh, I thought about them every day, but but there was nothing I could do. And had you ever been to school? I mean, never, right? This was your first experience. So what grade would they have put you in? Well, they put me like in uh, third grade, I think. You know, I remember when you're a street kid, you kind of, you know, you... You, you you know how to survive. You you know how to hustle in some way. I had learned some English words. Uh, so I think, you know, and I was older in some way. They said, you know, let's put him in third grade. You know, he might do better there. And sure enough, and I jumped. Once I went to third grade and fourth grade, then I jumped fifth and sixth because I was that smart. So I went to seventh grade. Wow, that's amazing. And what I love about your story is that oftentimes people say, I was struggling and I found God and I prayed and he answered my prayer. But in your case, he just chose you. There was no rhyme or reason, right? He chose you. You weren't crying out. You weren't, you know, trying to get to church. I mean, you were just surviving and he chose you. And, And that makes me feel like, wow, he can choose anyone. I mean, do you know what I mean? It wasn't like you were like painting or doing all the, like, oh, he's so special. And so you were just a kid that showed up every day and this guy was feeding you. And what an incredible story. And you were smart. This guy had to have known that you had potential. (laughs) I don't know, but but (laughs) think about you have this kid who had never wore shoes before, you know, as dirty as you can get. And the behaviors, he's never had any role model to behave well. So think about like, he really saw the best in me at my lowest point. You know, there wasn't anything pretty about me that he would say, I want to have that kid, nothing. I mean, he got to know me because I was trying to steal him, you know, to steal from him. But somehow he really saw the best in me and took me in. And I think that's really what changed my life. It wasn't where he took me, it's how he saw me at my lowest. And sure enough, I went to high school and I finished high school. And then I finished university, I went to university in Uganda. And then I went to university in England. 
And that's how I came to United States from the kindness of one man. Not only did he change me, but he changed my entire family. All my siblings went to university, not because they could do it, but because he set me as an example, you know, and once they saw Peter did, they said, if Peter can do it, we can do it as well. But also I knew I could not take them away from my family, but I can at least help them in education because Mm -hmm. I knew no one can take that away from them. And I think that's really how he changed my entire family through the kindness towards me. Did he stay in your life? Yes, he's still, most people know him as my dad or my family because I lived with them. From, so he, you know, he adopted I, you, basically. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. So you would go to his home. Like he brought you into his home, right? Correct. After six months, after he saw that I was doing well at school, he's like, could you come and be part of the family? And so he took me in and, you know, and became of their family. So every time, you know, I was in a boarding school, but when school wasn't out, I would live with them. And and that's how they became my family. Oh, my goodness. What an amazing story. So after you came to the United States, what did you do? You know, so I went to school, uh, to a theological school. Uh, and then I worked for Compassion International. Really, my job was to advocate for the most vulnerable. And that became my part of the job. Every Sunday, I would travel, you know, to our field countries and be able to speak on behalf of kids so kids can be sponsored. And then I found out about Foursquare. And I was like, okay, I think that's my place, you know? I've always wanted to be a dad. And I thought as a single man, you know, while I'm waiting to get married one day, I should maybe be a dad to a kid. And that's why I walked into the Foursquare system and I said, hey, I would love to help. How can I help? Okay. Did you you also work for World Vision? Yes. So currently I am a part-time with World Vision. So I work for Compassion International. I've been with World Vision for four years. Yes. So I have been truly an advocate for kids. Wow. You know, I have been thinking lately about those of us that are so passionate about adoption and about children. And a lot of us have the same thing in common. And that's that we know what it's like to feel like an orphan. We know what it's like to feel that you don't have the family unit or you don't have somebody in your corner, or you have these moments where you don't feel like your needs are being met as a child. And that feeling stayed with us so much that it compelled us to try to fight that a child would never feel that way, that a child would never feel worthless, that a child would never feel like they were like an animal or that they could be just thrown aside, that every life matters. Right. And that's what it did for me, that I mattered. You know, they use words of affirmation to help me, things I did not understand. You're special. Wait, I'm special? You mean it? You know? And in some way, those kind of words really helped me heal my own journey. You know, the wounds that I have had, the, the, the hatred I had had towards my dad, that all really that were taken away because someone was kind to be able to remind me that every day. Did you ever reconcile with your father? Yes. But for me, I think I had to reconcile with him. Either he wanted or he wanted, you know, like I, it was my part to play, not his. Like, I think I needed to heal, you know, and let go of the anger. And, you know, so it, I did not have to ask him to forgive me or mm-hmm. for him to you know come and say hey peter could you forgive no that wasn't his part but i think it was my own journey that i needed to do it you know my way uh, and, and forgive him and i think that really helped me heal uh in in better ways mm-hmm. you know and some of the work that 
we did over in Uganda was just teaching fathers how to be fathers, right? And breaking a generational curse of abuse. They have lived like this. Their father abused them. And so that's all they know to do. And children are not valued. And I say that a lot to people and they don't really understand. Like you said, you weren't named until you were two because they didn't know if you would survive or Families will have five children because they hope that out of the five, maybe three will survive. And just the value of life or you have one sickly child, but you don't throw any money to help the child. You just let that one, that one's just not going to make it. And so your money goes to the stronger ones. I mean, that mentality is so different than America, right? But now we have... um, this this amazing story that you have where you are actually like going back and forgiving your father and breaking that generation and saying, no, that generational curse is not going to be a part of me. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be loving and I'm going to work in the foster care system in the United States. Like unbelievable. I mean, if people are listening to this and they are not so inspired, I am worried about them because this is an inspiring story. And what you've done, you worked hard, you know, and you, you believed that there was something better, but that's because other people inspired you. You didn't even know the possibility. Yes. But also too, like I saw how my mother was treated. My mother was treated as a second class citizen. So is my sister. And I wanted to break that cycle. As you said, I said, no, uh, I know men in, in, in most traditional countries, like in Africa, you know, they are first class and then the rest are below. And I wanted to change that. Like, no, you know, my mom is as special as anyone. And my sister uh, is uniquely and wonderfully met that I'm not going to uh, really let the traditional cut somehow determine or decide of who they should be that I really wanted to honor. But I needed to do that for them. Uh, and that's really been a joy. And that's why I'm glad being even a single dad. To really, in some way, you know, the stigma of only, you know, women go take care of kids and that's the men would just go home and do nothing or abuse. I'm like, traditionally, no, I want to show that truly we have equally responsibility to nurture and be there for our little ones, both girls and boys. Uh, and that's truly been a joy. Okay. So people are going to want to know how you became a foster dad. Like, how do you do that if you're from a different country how do you do your home study and all those things? What are the hoops you have to jump through? You know, so for, to, to be a false parent, one, you have to be willing and you have room and you want to love the kids. Secondly, you have to be at least a, a permanent resident or an American citizen, you know? So for me, when I started, I was, I think yeah, I was a, a permanent resident, you know, that, 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 you know, that I was willing to say, I would like to help kids and I would like to be there for them. And sure enough, I qualified, you know, you go to map class, which is, you know, learn how to be a parent to kids from a traumatic background, but also too, you know, you're licensed by the state you live in or the county you live in. Uh, and that's kind of how it works. So you can only force the kids within your state or within your county. So if you're licensed by your county, you can only get kids from your county. If you're licensed by the state, especially through the agency, that means you can get any child, but they have to be within your own state. So my kids are all from North Carolina uh, and a few that I've adopted are from Oklahoma. So that's where we lived before we moved to, to North Carolina. Do you think it was harder for you being from a different country, being a male 
being single. Yeah, there was a lot of scrutiny. Yes, <laughs> there was a lot of scrutiny for sure. You know, I think there was a lot of scrutiny in everything I did. Like, are you sure? Are you, did you sign up for this? Do you know what it entails? Do you know how to cook? So there were more visits and more background checking somewhere, you know. But two, I think what made it the hardest was the outsiders. You know, everywhere I went, people were like, you know, what What are you doing? I, I, can you be a dad? You know, you know, we've been called on police by what seven times already. Oh my god! Because someone saw us and they're like, "Are you fit to be their dad?" and and they called the police. And but learning through all that, that, I cannot change what people think. Yes. But I can live my life and truly follow my dream, and that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and it's truly been a joy for sure. I love that you said that. Follow your dream, because. You as an African, you have Caucasian children in your home. And you said that the police were called on you. I mean, what a flip of script, right? I always talk about being a Caucasian mom with African-American children and what people say to myself or my husband and or about our family. And you know what? You got it, Peter. The bottom line is follow the dream that's in your heart. It does not matter what people say. And if there is problems that you have to go through or problems that present themselves, you jump through those hoops, right? Because you have your eye on the goal. You know exactly what you're called and meant to do. That is so important. And that rises above all of those other problems. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I signed up to be a post parent. I went to school by myself. I learned to do, you know, so in some way, like I knew I'd been called to this. The the outside noise, like you, you learn to really, you know, not pay attention, but to truly change them as well. Like, I think I wanted to change the narrative that men, we can be good parents, but also the African men, mm -hmm. we can be good parents as well. You know, I did not force mm -hmm. earlier because I did not believe I could be. I travel over the world. I had never seen a black person adapting. Mm -hmm. You know, I never seen a, a black, someone who looked like me that was going through the same. And while we're in Ethiopia, I asked, I said, is there a way I could adapt? Literally, they said, you have to be European. You have to be an American and you have to be a female. But male? No. And I was like, okay. So even me going to Polske, I went in and said, is there a way you could allow me to mentor teenagers? That's when they said, hey, have you ever thought of being a foster dad? To which I said, I don't think I qualify because I'm single. They're like, nope, you can do that. You know, so for me, learning that, I really wanted to change the narrative that we can all do good. It's not just this and that and them. Like we, can, we can all, we can all change lives. But two, I wanted to, you know, remove the stereotype that, you know, African men or black men are not good dads, that we can truly be good dads. And then my third one is I wanted to, I am not into protesting about race and all that, but I wanted my life to be a testimony and a protest that I'm willing to love my kids. They don't look like me. They have, I mean, we have nothing in common, <laughs> but they are my lovely, amazing kids and we are family. And if I can have empathy towards mm -hmm. them as they are, you should have empathy towards me, you know? And that's really what I wanted to change, you know, in, in people's eyes. Um, you know, the abuse doesn't stop, but through that, I get mm. to teach them. I, I just like feel so amazed and astounded that you do what you do and the cards were completely stacked against you. And we have a lot of listeners that struggle to bring home children. They struggle with international adoption. I mean, they're, the struggle is real. They are having a hard time and yet they fit the profile that you just said, right? Everything they told you 
that you needed to be a Caucasian or female or um, all the things. They fit that profile and yet they still are struggling. But then you look at yourself and you're like, wow, like even he's like so further back and yet you're doing it and you're doing, you pushed through. And so I think that is a huge example to all of us to say, listen, if Peter is doing this and encouraging and keeping on the path and he's encouraging these kids, we can do this. We can do this. Listen, adoption community, if you're listening to this and you just felt down and out, today is your day. You can do this. If you're a foster parent and it's just so hard, we we totally get that. And like Peter said, we have empathy for you. But listen, we can do this because remember the dream when you started out. Remember what you wanted to do. Remember when you sat in those classes. Remember how you wanted to love children. And I know it's hard and we're not saying that trauma is not real and all these things and dealing with birth families, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. But what we are saying is you can do it. He's saying you can do it. And if he's saying you can do it, you can for sure do it. Right, Peter? Yes, you can do it. You know, I had never been a parent before. I lived in a different country that I didn't understand most of the poor cause and how, but somehow I learned along the way. And the bubble, I got my video, just like Apple. You know, I follow, I watch what she does, and I'm like, you know what? She's teaching me something. So it takes a village, but we get to learn from each other. You're not alone. Don't, don't, don't go in your head and say, I can't, I can't. No, think about I can do this, but I'm willing to go alongside others and they will help me out. Uh, and sure, you will. You will. That's right. That's why the community is so important. And hearing your story is just um, is amazing. And you did write a book. Before we get to your book, I have to know, how are you with birth families? Because you are a foster dad, right? You have two children that you did adopt, but you have children coming in and out. And of course, you have to do reunification. And so you're going to have to go to these birth parent meetings and all the things you have to do. What is that like for you? Well, at first, you know, so when I became a post parent, I think I was putting my dad to to the to the bio parents, like those evil people, you know. But he's what changed for me. So one day I had had my second child, and and he wasn't feeling well, and it was at three in the morning. So I was like, who do I call? You know, the social worker. I knew there's no way they can answer, but I called the mom. I said, hey, your little one is not feeling well. What should I do to make him feel well? And she gave me the list of things I needed to do. And sure enough, this kid went to bed and was okay. The following morning, I got a phone call from my mom and she said, Peter, thank you for letting me be a mom for a minute. And there and then it clicks. I was like, yes, they are my allies. You know, the greatest thing I can do is really to come alongside. Look, I went to school for 10 days, to be, you know, for, for 30 hours to be a parent. I have all the support you could think of. I'm educated. I have resources, but still it's hard for me to somehow assume someone who was you know, who didn't have those resources that should take their kids is a little bit too much to ask for, you know? But also I remember as a street kids, I would hear people say, what a mother will let their child be here. But in my head, I'll be like, I, ha- I wish you knew what my mama had to go through, the abuse she had to go through just to protect me, you know? And I think the same empathy that I truly have towards their moms, you know, that I force a child and their parents. That's my whole goal. When kids go yeah. back, it's the greatest gifts I can give them. You know, it's the greatest, like I have extended families, I can tell you, left and right. Why? Because I got to know these kids and they got to reunify with their parents and now they're family. 
And but also they get to help me, you know, help more kids as well. So it's amazing. And we tag along and not judge the parents, but see them as our allies and give them the best they can so they can have their kids back is the greatest gift we can give to the kids. Those who don't have a home, I'm willing to adapt all of them if I can, <laughs> you know. But I think my goal is to truly also really help the bio parents so they can have their little ones back. And it's the greatest thing we could do for them. It's so true. And we always say adopt the whole story. But I love that you're saying foster the whole family, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. For the sake of the child. That's right. For the sake of the child. That's amazing. Tell us about your book. Well, my book. So the family that took me in used 12 words of affirmation and they really encouraged me. So for me writing a book, I really wanted to show that if I can be the odds, you can be the odds. But also I use my abuse as a foundation to do better for myself. You know, remember what Joseph said, for what you meant for evil, God used it to save lives of others. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to do. For our listeners, you know, we've all gone through a difficult time to not let your past determine your future, but rather to use it as a foundation to help others. And I wanted my kids to know me. They know they have a super cool dad, but to say, <laughs> yes, he's a super cool dad. But he also went through the most difficult trauma that he had to go through. So they can see if dad can overcome that, I have hope and a future for me as well. Because I wanted to be vulnerable and honest about my journey to show that I can be the odds. Anyone can. And that's the reason why I wrote the book. So the book is a story of your life? Yes. Now I'm known to make others known. Yes. Now I am known to make others known. And where can people find it? Any, any bookstore in the world, you know, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books, you're going to find it. Absolutely. And here's why I'm, you know, uh, you support me. That means I get to help more kids. I get to foster more children. I get to adapt more children. And I get to truly get out for kids. And you get and your I, bus. I want the bus. Oh, yes. <laughs> 20 kids. Peter Mutabazi. Thank you. Banange Mokwano. I thank you so much for being here. You have made my heart so happy. And you know what? In season six, I feel like it has been a blessing to me. Most, Mm. I mean, when my guests come on the show and change Mm. my life and help me become a better parent, the show is 100% worth it. I want that for every family that listens. Absolutely. But what season six has done for me and the people God has sent me has been so restorative on our journey. And let me tell you, you are the icing on the cake to talk to somebody from the country that I love and to know what you have gone through, to be where you are and to watch you turn around and bless children and take care of children is so rewarding to me. So you don't even know what you've done for me, but I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on the show. I want you back. I want you to do a show with my husband. I think we should do a father's show with you and him talking about being adoptive dads. Yes. Yes. I would love that. Absolutely. The challenges, but also the joy of being dads. Yes, that's right. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. And thank you for listening. If you have an adoption story you'd like to share, please email us at afallon at adoptionalpodcast.com. We'd love for you to subscribe and get our weekly podcast and follow us on social media. 
Thanks for joining us on your adoption show. See you next episode.